This is an ABC podcast. This is the Health Report. I'm Norman Swan. Nice to have your company. I'm going to have to get you to work a bit this week, but it's worth it because what we're talking about are huge issues that profoundly affect how you make decisions about your own health and well-being. Because most health stories that you see, read and hear are based on studies published in scientific journals, the most reputable of which require the studies to meet a set of criteria assessed by a panel of referees before the paper gets published. The trouble is that the system is flawed, and the result is that you and I can be misled about the evidence and perhaps inadvertently make the wrong decision. At its worst, it could mean that a government regulator makes the wrong decision about what treatments to approve or reject. So today, we're going to cover three controversies. The way medical and other researchers measure their impact and worth. Whether the phrase statistical significance should be abolished. And publication bias. Publication bias, in other words, whether a study which is rigorous and has good methods gets into a journal in the first place. We know that drug company funded studies are more likely to show positive results and be published. And there still seems to be a bias against what's, what are called null hypothesis studies. That's jargon for where the medication or treatment hasn't made a difference to the outcome, whether that be heart attacks, strokes, cancer survival or whatever. An Australian initiative funded by philanthropy aims to change that. It's headquartered in New York, but run by a neurologist at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne. It's called the Centre for Biomedical Research Transparency, and its head is Dr Sandra Petty. Welcome to the Health Report, Sandy. Thank you, Norman. So this problem, I mean, do we know the extent of the problem? It's a fairly large problem, actually, Norman. As you've said, when researchers write up their results of studies for publication as a paper, it's a really competitive field to get your result into a major journal. And uh, the data on that is that perhaps up to 50% of studies can still remain unpublished. Unpublished or unwritten up or both? Both. Um, it so you can get a negative study and, level. and it's, sorry to interrupt. So, so it gets, you, you find a negative study, you think this is hopeless, nobody's going to publish it and you don't even bother writing it up. That would be one factor that can happen that's to do with research culture or you could uh, put a paper into a journal and have it rejected and rejected again and again, which is quite uh, upsetting if you're a researcher, particularly if it's merely due to the direction of the result and not the quality of your work. So good study, negative result, you don't get in. Look, I seem to see more and more negative studies in um, or null hypothesis studies being published. Isn't it getting better? I think it is getting better at the moment. I think this report's in the right place at the right time. There's a big push internationally at the moment to enhance transparency and also to improve publication of negative, inconclusive, and I guess also replicative results. Is there harm done by not publishing negative results? Well, potentially, yes, Norman. Um, basically, if you, I guess at the clinical level, it affects what I'm able to tell my patients about their treatment and what the likely risks and benefits are. And I know of the studies that show that the drug worked, but how do I know if there's more unpublished data that shows that it doesn't work in specific patient groups or situations? I think our patients really have an expectation that we have all the facts. And sometimes I'm not sure that we do. And then, and there's also waste involved because presumably you get more trials done when the answer's already in. 
Absolutely. So um, research waste is a huge topic with the funders internationally at the moment. Uh, I think that research that is done should be taken into consideration to inform further research design, both to prevent harm to patients or to um, stop wasting more money on something that doesn't work without taking that into consideration. Now, several years ago, I chaired a meeting at the World Health Organization in Geneva trying to get people together to agree on international trial registries, where if you're going to start a clinical trial, it's got to be registered. And if it's not registered, you don't get it published. And this was in part or in large part to deal with this problem so that you knew what trials were being done and you could find out what results they had so that you could track negative studies. Is that not working out? I think the registries are great, Norman. Um, if you have a look at the All Trials site, you can actually watch what's been registered and what's uh, been published or what percentage and which labs haven't published their data. But also that just covers clinical trials and biomedical research is much more broad than that with all of the preclinical studies. And those most of those ones are not actually registered as well. So uh, we can measure better now as a result of initiatives like that with the registries, um, which is fantastic but we're still not uh, quite sure what's going on in the rest of the field and it's still some of that data despite even legislation in the US is still not being published. So in a sense you're trying to prove a negative here which is impossible because you don't really know what's out there that's negative. That's true. We don't know the denominator, what percentage is it. It's it's very hard to say, but we know that there's a lot. And from the studies that have been done, there's billions of dollars wasted each year. If you look at Glasgow and Chalmers' work in the BMJ, uh, on a global scale, it's massive. And a large part of the research waste dollar is from negative data from estimates people have studied about this. I think they thought it was going to be, it was about $6 billion a year, but it might be wasted from memory. Um, have you got any examples where when you've uncovered negative studies, it's changed people's conclusions? We've actually published a, uh, a whole journal recently with neurology in the US. Neurology um, is a neurology's name, the name flagship of journal from the American Academy of Neurology, and we've done a joint venture with them to create neurology null hypothesis. Um, and looking at the papers that came out there, one of them was picked up by the Washington Post within a week or two of it actually being put up online and included in a, an article. Uh, it was about a myelitis outbreak, basically, and it was included to help with looking and informing the public and looking at the state of research in that field. And I think it's actually really helpful to have negative results out there in the field. Um, there'll be many examples in many different fields of things that don't work or even some groundbreaking papers proving that a treatment doesn't work in many fields. So Neurology, the journal, put out an invitation to readers to send in papers, offer papers for null hypothesis. Yes, they did that. Um, Robert Gross is the editor of Neurology, and he published an editorial in 2015 inviting negative study results to be submitted, and he really received a very limited response. I approached him at the annual meeting in 2017 and spoke to him about creating a joint venture with CBMRT, which is a New York-based organisation, and we have basically done a joint venture with Neurology to create Neurology Null Hypothesis to and it's been much more successful because in addition to editorials, we've promoted the issue throughout the society. We've promoted it at the annual meeting where everybody's present about the importance of writing up these results and also spoken with the editorial board. And we've received a really much better response to the point where we've been able to put out a whole issue of negative studies so at the end of April. Is it spreading to other journals? 
different fields are at different stages with this. We're certainly talking to other fields about doing something similar. Um, so I think watch this space. I certainly hope that it catches on with other journals if their fields were having the same issue that neurology were with getting our negative results out. So we'll be watching for negative results as time goes on and, and maybe have you back. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Norman. Dr. Sandra Petty is a neurologist at Alfred Health in Melbourne and CEO of the Centre for Biomedical Research Transparency. She, in fact, is the co-founder with Hugo Stevenson. You're with RN's Health Report and I'm Norman Swan. Let's go to the second issue and a really big row that's brewing amongst medical researchers. Some of them want to get rid of the phrase statistical significance or at least seriously de-emphasise it. You hear me or my interviews talking about statistical significance just about every week. It's the most important criterion for getting a paper published. Let me explain, and you will hear some of this again, but it's really important to understand because some of you aren't just Googling health conditions, you're looking at the actual scientific papers and making your own judgments, which is a good thing. But imagine you want to study the effect of, say, a new medication on the chances of having a stroke or a heart attack. The first thing you need to know is the background rate of heart attacks or strokes in the group of people you're interested in during the time frame of the study. If nothing changes, that's the null hypothesis we mentioned earlier. In other words, null meaning nothing's happened. So you do the study and you get a reduction in heart attacks and strokes. The question is whether the change was just the null hypothesis, the roll of the dice, the play of chance or natural variation, and nothing to do with the new drug. There's a statistical calculation that's made to determine this, and the result is called the p-value. p stands for probability, the probability that the change is within the null hypothesis. In other words, could have been the result of chance. So a p-value of 0.05 means there's a 5% probability of the result being the roll of the dice. A p-value of 0.01 means there's a 1% chance. Most journals use a p-value of 0.05 as their cutoff. In other words, looking the other way around, a 95% probability the result is the effect of the new drug. A widening group of researchers, though, want to either get rid of the p-value or make it less critical. One of those is Professor Andrew Davidson, Director of the Clinical Trials Committee for the Melbourne Academic Centre for Health. I spoke to Andrew the other day. Thank you, Norman. How big an edifice is statistical significance for medical research? I mean, just give a sense of its importance. It's huge. It's the way we interpret the results of many, many, many studies, and it's embedded in our thinking. Where did this p-value come from? Well, the p-value probably originated in the early 1700s, but the idea of statistical significance probably dates to about 1926. And it wasn't a piece of medical research at all? No, it was a guy called Fisher who was doing an experiment spreading cow manure. <laughs> what was he testing? To see how effective it was in increasing crop yields. And the idea here is that you're trying to find out whether something that you've found is beyond the risk that it was by chance. In other words, the you know, toss of a coin, manure in one field versus manure of another field, by chance you could get a benefit but what's the chance that it's not by chance, it's actually the manure that's doing the job? Yes, exactly. Now, we're going to dig into the weeds here, but the importance here before we dig into the weeds is that when I put a story on the health report and we read a paper, 
we look at whether or not it was been properly conducted and we look to see whether it achieves statistical significance. And the magic thing, you don't really need to know too much about it, but the magic th- number is if P equals less than 0.05, we're on the way to being a story on the health report because that equals statistical significance. And this is the core of the problem. Yes, that's correct. It's a if you like, an artificial decision that there's a sufficient degree of certainty that we believe that something's true. What does 0.05 actually mean? It is a surprisingly tricky thing to articulate. The p-value is the probability of finding a result due to chance rather than due to the underlying effect. A 95% confidence interval is a p-value of 0.05. Why do people want to get rid of it, apart from the fact that it's difficult to explain? Because it encourages people to sort of go into this dichotomous belief that something is true or is not true, and it doesn't allow a degree of uncertainty in the way that we report or interpret results. And is that just absolute? Because a lot of papers that you'll read, the p-value is less than 0.001, for example, which is a lot less than 0.05. In other words, they're much stronger statistical significance. Is it the cutoff or is it just the notion of statistical significance at all? Well, the statistical significance is built around having a cutoff. So some have suggested, well, why don't we shift it from 0.05 to 0.005? But that still leaves the problem of having this artificial dichotomy as to whether something is true or not. So if you chose 0.005 as your degree of statistical significance and you had a study which showed 0.006, then people would still be encouraged to think, well, actually, that shows no difference. Now, why should people listening to this who haven't got a clue about biostatistics care? Because it forces us to believe things are true or not true without the degree of uncertainty. It means that we're encouraged to adopt treatments, which perhaps we shouldn't, or we're ignoring findings when in fact we shouldn't ignore them. It may also explain why sometimes studies which look very similar have different results. But in fact, they're not different. If we regard them both as having a degree of uncertainty, they are actually compatible with each other. Can you give me an example? There are some drugs looking at hypertension and the treatments of hypertension. High blood pressure. Yes. And so one study might show that the drug does work. Another study, which is smaller, might show it doesn't work. And that causes confusion. When in fact, there is no confusion if you understand that there is a degree of uncertainty about both of the studies. A very small difference in the number of subjects or a slightly different sample could be above or below 0.05, which could lead people to believe that it does work or it doesn't work. And just to repeat what you said earlier, that could mean that a useful drug or treatment gets junked or a treatment that's not very useful gets used simply because of the cutoff. Yes. But the problem's been recognised for a while. So when you read a good paper, you're looking at how it's randomised and whether or not there's any variation between the experimental group and the not, and have they done that properly? And you also look at something like confidence intervals. So confidence intervals gives you a sense of what we were just talking about is what's the variation? So in other words, the blood pressure goes down by 20 millimetres of mercury. The confidence interval might tell you that that could actually be a rise of 5 millimetres or as much of a fall as 35 millimetres of mercury, that's how very, and therefore the narrower the confidence interval gives you additional confidence that the result is real. Isn't that enough that you've got these checks and balances in the paper? The confidence interval certainly helps because it forces us to think about the actual difference and also about the variability around the difference. But unfortunately, it's still a 95% confidence interval, which is still linked to a p-value of 0.05. So if you didn't have it, 
how would you ever get anything published? How would you know that a paper is worth publishing if you don't have, I mean, what, what are the statistics that you would use to judge whether or not this is worth anything? That's the problem, and that's why journals are reluctant to get rid of statistical significance because nobody's exactly sure what to replace it with. Clinicians and journals like certainty. They like to hear that A causes B or B is better than C. And regulators like, you know, if the regulator is going to choose the TGA in Australia is going to choose that a drug goes on the market, that's what they look at. Well, they look at a variety of results, but yes, if there's statistical significance, that does tend to come up as a flag. So you're asking the community and regulators to embrace uncertainty. Absolutely. And by moving away from saying something is there's statistical significance, it forces us when we report results to focus on what the actual difference is and also to focus on the variability or the degree of precision around what we've discovered. And we'll have to downtone any sort of conclusions that A is better than B or there's an association between A and B. Now, you're an editor-in-chief of a, of a journal, Paediatric Anesthesia. I think you've decided you are going to junk the p-value. How do you decide what's publishable? Oh, we won't junk the p-value, but we'll junk the term statistical significance and the cutoff of 0.05. It's going to be interesting. With any result, there's a degree of certainty and there's the effect size. And it'll be up to the editors and the reviewers to decide whether that difference and that certainty around that difference is sufficient to warrant publication. So it will, to some extent, be a subjective decision. You're making me nervous here because a lot of the time when you're covering stories for the public and you feel the sense of responsibility... Journals are not neutral in whether they publish something. They look at who's the senior author, if they're a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, the evidence is that you're more likely to get in. If it's been funded by a drug company, it's more likely to have a positive result. There's so many biases in how a paper gets published and therefore how people like me promote it or not to the general public. Aren't you asking for more unacceptable variation based on the foibles of somebody sitting in their offices around the world looking at papers and judging whether they're going to get published? I don't think so. The results will be the same. It's just the interpretation of, of some sort of arbitrary cut-off point which is going to change. It will put more onus on the reader and you to look at things more carefully to decide what the results actually mean, yes. So what are the barriers to doing this? One barrier is we're not quite sure of the terminology to use to express the uncertainty. Another is people believe that it'll just cause chaos, as you've alluded to, if we can't say X causes Y or A is associated with B. Certainty sells, so journals tend to like to say we've discovered X. And of course, one of the benefits here is that one of the things that confuses and, and indeed angers the public is that one day something causes cancer and the next day it doesn't. It's like certainty fatigue and perhaps the public and clinicians are getting a bit fatigued with this. And perhaps if we had a way of expressing uncertainty, then clinicians and the public would actually have more faith in the results of the research that we do. One of the things that we cover a lot is what's called the gold standard in evidence, which is not a single randomised trial. It's where researchers have brought together all the randomised trials in a particular area in what's called a systematic review or a meta-analysis, which then says when you actually sum it all up, here's the balance, but it's still expressed in statistical significance. So how does your view that you should lose the emphasis on statistical significance affect systematic reviews? 
Yes, you're correct. The systematic review still tends to come up with a 95% confidence interval, which is linked to the idea of statistical significance. But you would hope there would be more discussion about the size of the difference that they find around the bounds of the 95% confidence interval or the, the bounds of the certainty in their estimate. So what the consumer needs to, the questions they need to ask is, what's the range of benefit here? What am I likely to expect rather than necessarily whether or not it was statistically significant. Yes. So embrace uncertainty. Andrew, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Professor Andrew Davidson is head of the Trials Committee in the Melbourne Academic Centre for Health. Now to the third issue, a widely used method for judging the effectiveness and quality of a researcher's output. It's called the Citation Index and measures how often researchers' papers are referenced by others in their papers. The more citations, the better, right? Well, maybe. That's unless you're over-citing yourself or getting a cabal of your mates to cite you and you do it for them. John Ioannidis and his colleagues have studied this using a massive amount of data in an attempt to get a level playing field. John is Professor of Statistics and Medicine at Stanford University in California. And before I unleashed him on the citation index, I thought I'd first get him to comment on p-values, which he actually supports. John, let's just start with the p-value story. Andrew Davidson has been talking about getting rid of it, not completely, but certainly far less emphasis on it. It's pretty arbitrary and doesn't allow for uncertainty, which in fact, I'm kind of surprised that you object to it because many of the interviews I've done with you are all about uncertainty and how it's very hard to get certainty in medical research. And if you try to do that, you're usually wrong. That's true. I think that it's important to be able to communicate the right amount of uncertainty and a PI alone would not suffice. However, I think that just getting rid of it will get us into a situation where we have even fewer tools to navigate into that mess of uncertainty. That's probably not a good idea. And replace it with what? Well, replace it, I think Andrew's saying, with a wider range of measures, which gives a more sophisticated assessment of what you've actually found. His argument being that because it's an arbitrary cutoff and you've got uncertainty around that cutoff, you could be rejecting valuable interventions or on the converse, you could be accepting interventions which actually don't work. I'm very much in favor of adding metrics that may be able to confer how big is the effect of an intervention, like a medical intervention, along with measures of uncertainty. P-values have a very long history of misuse. However, they can tell us useful things if they're used properly. For example, where we set up some goal ahead of time and we try to run a fair assessment and we have pre-specified what we want to do, and we have some rules of engagement, and then we try to see what happens. We think very carefully. We design the study very carefully. I think that if we don't have that set of rules in that particular set of circumstances, then any result that we get, we can interpret it based on what our beliefs or our biases or, or our preconceptions are. So we may get a result that would have failed, but then we say we succeeded. So what you're saying is your problem is as much the moving of the goalposts after you've done the study as the cutoff itself. In other words, if you set the cutoff and you stick to it and stick by the rules, don't move the goalposts after you've done the study. Where do you sit with the p-value being 0.05? This is getting incredibly technical for the audience, but we've been through it with Andrew a little bit already. But that's the kind of arbitrary cutoff. Should it be more stringent than that p equals 0.01 or 0.001? 
I think that in most situations, a p-value of 0.05 is a very weak threshold. It's very, very easy to, to pass. And both myself and many others have argued that in the large majority of situations, you should seek a more demanding threshold. And we have argued, for example, using 0.005. Let's move on to this issue of citation since now that we're talking about the quality of evidence, and this is about the quality of a researcher and how much you are quoted and your paper is quoted in the scientific literature. Your hypothesis is that people are citing themselves and giving themselves a leg up. This is a part of the game, and to to some extent it's partly legitimate. If you have done some work in the past, that work needs to be referred to in order to have continuity and to know what is really the new contribution of information. At the other end of the spectrum, we do have situations where a number of scientists are over-citing themselves and or their colleagues who are co-authors in the same paper repeatedly refer to their own work and this is done beyond measure. And you've looked at the 100,000 most cited authors across all scientific fields, looking at six measures of citations, and you found a phenomenon that you call citation farms. What are they? Citation farms is the situation where you have a, a number of scientists who are citing each other. It's not necessary that they're on the same papers, but somehow they have a pact or an agreement that I will cite you and you will cite me, And this means that if you search directly for self-citations where someone is citing his or her own work, you will not necessarily find that many. But if you try to see, well, how many people are really citing that person's work, then you see that there is a cluster of a few individuals who repeatedly and massively would cite each other. But couldn't that just be that they're all in the same area and they're working in the same field and therefore it's the same body of knowledge? I think it's an issue of magnitude. So, uh, of course, uh, people who are in the same scientific area or in in the vicinity of a scientific area would tend to cite each other to a good extent. But in these situations where we're talking about citation farms, this happens like a hundredfold more compared to a natural type of of citing behavior. The big advantage of looking across all scientists in, in all science, which is what we did in the database that we created, is that you can have a sense of what are the norms and what is the typical situation, what is the average situation, and also what is the average situation across each scientific field and each scientific subfield. And what were your p-values in this study, John? We had no p-values at all because it was an entirely descriptive project. Just being cheeky. But the... (laughs) Why is it important? Does, I mean, does saying that I'm the second most cited author in the physiology of the heart get you more grants, get you promotions at work? What does it do for you? Citations and citation indices can be powerful and, and they can also be subversive. They can be used properly and they can be easily misused. As scientists, we like to measure things and it's unavoidable that people will start measuring scientific productivity and its impact. Is that good or is it bad? There's mixed feelings about it. And I think that I have seen a tremendous amount of misuse and uh, misinterpretation of different metrics. This is exactly the reason why we try to create these uh, standardized databases. We looked at uh, data from all 35 million authors across science who have published at least a single paper. 
Then we focused more deeply on about 7 million, 6.8 million who have published at least five papers. We present percentiles of performance with different metrics within the 7 million. And then we give very granular raw data on the top 100,000. I think this may help to standardize and normalize and put things into perspective because if you don't do that, then each scientist or each organization or each team will present their own metrics in their own way, with their own measurements, without standardization, without being able really to put them in in context. It's as if you're trying to measure something and you have a hundred different scales that no one has ever taken the time to to see if they're measuring the same thing or whether they're 50% off or 300% off just as a start. So, I mean, what we've done in today's program is lifted the lid, the bonnet, if you like, and looked inside the engine room of science and medical science in particular. Really, it's not up to the public, but it's got to be the administrators who run science to actually police it a bit more effectively. I think it's just a starting point, and obviously there's far more to see once you, you lift the lid. <laughs> John Udias, thanks for being so uncontroversial yet again on The Health Report. Thank you for inviting me. John Unidas is Professor of Medicine, Health Research Policy, Biomedical Data Science and Statistics at Stanford University School of Medicine in California. I'm Norman Swan. This has been The Health Report. See you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app. G'day, Dr. Carl here. If you enjoyed that sciencey goodness, then maybe you'd like my podcast, Great Moments in Science. We cover dead brains coming back to life, mirror universes, and the truth about the global sand shortage. Search for Great Moments in Science in the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.